ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. My name is Raymond John Denny and I'm a prisoner. The whole system is based on secrecy uh, so that only one side of the story ever gets out. Hello, I'm Kirsty Melville and you're with The History Listen here on RN. Over the next two episodes, we're capturing the turbulent life of Raymond Denning. Raymond Denning, a dangerous animal on the run or a victim of the system? Hear his side of the story, the side you won't read about in the papers, 8.30 tonight on From an early age, Ray found himself on the wrong side of the law. His criminal career included stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars. He's said to be the most travelled prisoner in the state, so hated by prison warders that he's been shifted constantly between prisons... He had numerous pen pal love interests, and he escaped from jail multiple times. According to official police statements, Raymond John Denning is public enemy number two and, quote, an extremely violent criminal. Ray Denning's story is intertwined with the evolution of our juvenile justice system with police corruption and with Australia's prisoner rights movement. But behind all the Ned Kelly PR lies a man convicted of a crime that has earned him life imprisonment. In part one, you'll hear archives of Denning himself recorded from his prison cell. Here's the ABC's Mike Williams. And a warning, the story begins with a graphic description of self-harm. Ray Denning was just a kid when his dad went to prison. He moved around a lot with his mum and sister, Charmaine. We never was in one permanent place. Nothing we could call home, nothing we could call a family. Never made friends. We just had each other. Ray's mum remarried, a man known as Mr Wright. For three months, they lived in a house with a white picket fence in Windang, near Wollongong. But this was just a glimpse of a life that was never to be. Then comes the event which turns Denning's head inside out. It was 1961. Denning was 10 years old. His dad was just about to be released from prison and he wrote a letter to Ray's mother. He's angry because he's been divorced while he was in jail. Author and historian Mark Dappen. And the tone of the letter may have been, I'm coming out and I'm coming for you. Ray's mother doused herself in kerosene and lit a match. Running around the house, trying to pull herself out, but really succeeding. She rolled on the bed. The beds were on fire. Ray's sister, Charmaine, remembered it vividly. Raymond was standing on a chair, I can remember that, trying to find the key. Because there was only one door to the house, the kids couldn't get out any other way. She couldn't get out. She could only go out in one direction. Find the key, get out, get out, get out. Her burns were so bad that she was taken to hospital and she died three days later, I think. And then all of a sudden, we just had nothing. We didn't even have each other because we were separated. Charmaine and Ray went to different aunts. As a teen, Ray was picked up for a petty crime, spent a night in custody. He believed he was left there because his adopted family was in no rush to come get him. If you were to put yourself in his position, I would have felt abandoned, punished and abandoned. Mark Dappen is the author of Public Enemies. He says that first night Ray spent locked up was significant. 
perhaps that causes a psychological wound that is difficult to solve. If you think I'm in this situation which is frightening and no one's coming to help me and my mum burned to death, it would be hard not to sympathise with someone who is essentially a helpless child. Ray didn't last at his aunt's place. Raymond was very unhappy there, he wasn't happy at all. Felt out of place, didn't feel like he was in a family, started to get into trouble then. Didn't know what to do with himself and at the age of about 13 or 14 he took off. He was by himself and has been by himself ever since. He apparently lived with two what used to be called working girls in the cross. Before I was 15, I knew all the city of Sydney and had girlfriends. So I went to live with a couple of girls at the cross and that's where my real life of crime started. He wrote, Crime was the only way I knew that let me be with my friends 24 hours a day. There was a great excitement out, stealing cars, robbing shops. And plunged into the um, juvenile justice system, eventually arriving at Mount Penang. Mount Penang was a juvenile correction centre near Gosford, Central Coast, New South Wales. What an institution like Mount Penang does, in a way, it offers a form of stability for them. And I think that's the, if there was any kindness behind the thinking, that's where it lay. Stability came at a cost. The 500-odd kids were kept in line with military-style discipline. The punishments there are, are totally senseless. Kevin Storey was at Mount Penang a few years before Ray. He described the cruelty, the disproportionate punishments. There's no sort of education facilities there. It was mainly work and discipline. That sort of doesn't make you too uh, keen on the system. As well as that, juvenile detention gave the boys a network. It was really a trade school for them. Slowly, progressively, you just progress from, from that system to a worse system. You learn to do break and entry. You do your break and entries, you get pinched for that, you go in adult jail. Adult jail, you learn how to do an armed rob. Ray said that 75% of the boys he met in Mount Penang, he'd later meet in jail. His first stint came young. After Penang, he went to juvie in Perth and wound up in Adelaide, where he got picked up for vagrancy. The ultimate injustice, I suppose, in the life that has seems at no stage to have been easy Vagrancy, uh, the crime of having no money, the crime of being poor, the crime of being neglected, the crime of not having parents who can look after you. While in South Australia, his network grew. He meets a guy called Roy the Rat Pollitt. They decide to do armed hold-ups when they get out, and they did. Roy got caught, so Ray held up a bank to get bail money for Roy, then he got done too. He went to jail in Parramatta, but he wasn't planning on sticking around. He became involved at some level in an escape attempt. In 1974, Ray Denning and three other prisoners were working on a construction job within the jail. The job was overseen by a civilian tradie called Willie Carl Faber who was specifically employed to teach the prisoners construction skills. Four of them tried to escape by taking um, either a makeshift ladder or the materials to build a makeshift ladder from the builder's hut. While they tried to rob the hut, the overseer was bashed over the head 
with a hammer. He was left lying in a, in a pool of blood. Yeah, a terrible assault on a man who was not among the prison officers who was either hated or feared by the prison population, simply a guy who was doing his job trying to help. After the escape failed and Willie's assault was investigated, the finger was pointed at Ray Denning. Denning always denied doing this, always. I told the police I know nothing about this and I fully maintain my innocence. I then asked if I could ring a barrister. This was denied. Ray explains how the next day he was woken early, tied up and sent to Grafton Prison. Don't look up, otherwise we'll smash the swelling. I was then in the mood and I was flogged again until in a semi-state of consciousness. But the consensus among prisoners in the underworld is that he did in fact do it. Willie was severely injured but didn't die. His quality of life would never be the same though. For this, Ray was given a life sentence, another 13 years. The incident made Ray a deeply unpopular prisoner within the system. The prison service was never, ever going to forgive Danning for that. What was significant to Denning during the escape assault investigation was that for the first time, he was verbaled. The statement that he gave admitting his part in the escape um, was invented. But who'd invent a statement, a document where the alleged criminal conveniently admits to their crime? Before DNA evidence, before CCTV cameras... This man is, as they say, helping police with their inquiry. It was actually quite difficult to gather evidence against professional criminals. And if a telephone book couldn't encourage a confession, no matter. There was always verbaling or dropping a brick. And the police would confess for him, make a record of interview, essentially a work of fiction. You'd sit down at the typewriter and, as we used to say, once upon a time there were three bears and now there's thousands. And then at the end of this notional interview, the guy would refuse to sign the statement, sign the record of interview, just because I want to make trouble for you boys, or I don't need to sign it, you've heard it all already, I've said it, I never sign anything. Even Roger Rogerson says it goes on. It was all done in the interest of, uh, of truth, justice and... Uh, and, uh, and uh, mm, how's prison, Roger? And yet that record of interview would be presented before the courts to magistrates and judges who would have heard virtually the same story, almost word for word, time and time again, and who accepted it time and time again. Ray Denning ends up in Maitland Jail. In the 70s, it was common for prisoners to get shuffled around New South Wales prisons. Ray seems to always be on the move, though. He's reunited with his old mate, Roy the Rat Pollitt. He also catches up with a mate by the name of Billy Sutton. Billy Sutton was the shower sweeper at Maitland, the head shower sweeper. Sweeper is a position of some responsibility. A responsibility Billy was willing to abuse. This was the beginning of the Maitland crew. They were brought together by their shared interest in one thing, breaking out. 
above the cubicles there was a ventilation shaft for some reason painted red as if in case you're wondering where you might escape from there's that red thing up there that, that, that could be your best bet mate they'd set all the showers on hot and close the door so there's like a steam room Denning, Sutton, Roy the Rat and others loosen the shaft they use a rope of knitted blankets to get up the narrow shaft and they're onto the roof once they were on the roof, because of the architecture of Maitland Jail, they couldn't actually be seen by the guard tower. Classic blind spot. Meanwhile, downstairs... Prison officers open the door and they just... This steam blows into their faces. What's going on? What's going on? Where have they gone? They're lowering themselves down the face of Maitland Jail with a rope made of bedwear. And then... They were out. The group split into two. Ray, Billy and Roy the Rat hijacked a car. The cops pursued. When they got to the Hunter River, they jumped out. Ray and Billy swam across the river. Roy couldn't swim, so he just ran down the banks. Ray and Billy then found a farmer's car in a paddock. The farmer was there working. So they took the Holden and drove for the road. The farmer saw them and took off in perhaps not hot pursuit, perhaps in cool pursuit. Unfortunately, it turned out Holden was, was a little bit faster than his tractor and 10 metres from his gate, he lost them. Didn't matter. The pair were picked up in nearby Raymond Terrace by a police roadblock. And taken back to Maitland Jail where they were, you know, probably bashed for 90 minutes of freedom. They had several more years added to their sentences. Ray and Roy the Rat appeared before the court. Denning was well, quite, quite reasonably asked to answer to the name of Raymond John Denning, his birth name, but he refused to do so on the grounds that he was now um, Lobsang Rampa and possessed of the spirit of a uh, Tibetan monk. A Lobsang Rampa wasn't, wasn't a Tibetan monk. He was a fraud, a guy who wrote a great many books claiming to have spent a life in a Tibetan monastery, but in fact lived in Plymouth, I think, in England. In order to um, visually display his adherence to Tibetan Buddhism, Denning had shaved his head. Pollitt had also shaved his head and said he was also um, one with the spirit of, of the dead Tibetan. They weren't. Denning eventually was transferred to Katingle. He described the building as an electronic zoo, inhuman, ill-conceived and expensive. Katingle was this high security section within Long Bay Jail and construction for it was completed in 1975. One year later, the Nagel Royal Commission, which looked at violence within the prison system, began. The commission was sparked after earlier riots in Bathurst. On the eve of the Nagel Inquiry, prisoners from Grafton's notorious tracks wing were moved into Katingle, and this included Denning. This new prison had a solution for violence between prisoners and officers. It was designed to house 40 prisoners in four by two metre cells, where they spent 11 hours a day. Katingle was supposed to be escape proof. It looked like a sort of overground submarine. The only view from your cell was a slit in the doorway through which you could see the clock. 
the only natural light in the building was from the barred roof in the exercise yard, which was too small for prisoners to exercise properly. There was opposition to Katingal right from the word go. The Builders Labourers Federation opposed it. Could you stop quite, the prison officials from quite, using CSK? Well, prisoners' rights activists opposed it. At least one bomb was found yeah. on the site. I mean, exactly who are running these jails? It seems, the as all the prisoners feel, it seems that the screws are running our jails. But the major problem with Katingal arose from the concept of isolation the plan to minimise contact between prisoners and between prisoners and officers. The number of altercations between prisoners and guards collapsed because they couldn't even get to each other. It was extremely boring. It was very hard to tell what time of day or night it was. Everything was done for the prisoners. The chief medical superintendent for the department said that confinement in this environment for more than a year would be detrimental to a prisoner's mental health. It should be ripped down. It, it, it's, it's a waste of time, it's a waste of money. In human life, it's, it's just tragic. It's, it's ruined, man. Bernie Matthews ended up being the longest-serving prisoner at Katingal. Years later, he reflected back on the experience. What did it do to your head in there? Uh, well, that's how it got to you. With a physical beating, you can see the bruises. With a place like that, you can't see the bruises, but, but you know it's affecting you. You know it's damaging you, but... Uh, you don't know how and to what extent. And because there was no useful way to spend their days, some people's minds began to kind of give way. On the same corridor as Ray is a prisoner by the name of Russell Cox. He'd been sent to Katingle after a recent unsuccessful escape attempt. Cox um, has a tremendous fitness ethic. There's 19 steps from one end of a corridor in Katingle to the other, and every day Cox runs up and down, back and forth, up and down, back and forth. Even among a group of people for whom fitness exercise was pretty much the only recreational activity, Cox was considered a fitness fanatic. He's also a vegetarian, which people found astonishing. Like, a vegetarian wasn't a type of professional criminal. It was, you know, a type of woman, if anything. You know, how can a man be a vegetarian and a man in prison? It's, it was just unthinkable. So Denning and Cox become friends. They sit together in the workshop. Eventually, they, they come to, I suppose, conspire together. The legend has always been Cox would go into the yard and there's a blind spot in the yard that couldn't be seen. There's always a blind spot. They sort of designed the blind spot in. Yeah. <laughs> Hang it's on, like if we don't put a blind spot in this, they've got like no chance. Yeah, it's not fair yeah. at all. It's like a cheat in the <laughs> video game. You've got to put something. <laughs> Where's the narrative art without a blind spot? Cox would go into the blind spot in the yard, do a one-armed pull-up on the bar, then quickly hacksaw one of the roof bars. Just a little bit, then he drops. Cox has discovered, I don't think it was his hobby before, he's discovered in, in Katingle an interest in uh, modelling. Um, so he's uh, allowed to have modelling paint to paint his model aeroplanes or whatever. This modelling paint, coincidentally, is the same colour as the bars on the roof of the Katingle yard. So after he'd sawn a little way through a bar, he'd use his modelling paint to paint over the... Um, the mark left by the hacksaw. The day of the escape attempt, Denning sent back to Maitland for another trial regarding his last escape. On the way up there, he tries to, yes, escape, 
So the guards catch on and they leave him in Maitland for the night. Now Denning's gone from Gatingle, no one knows when he's coming back, and Cox is worried a guard will discover that loose roof bar. By now it's getting pretty loose. So he decides, now or never, he's going to escape solo. That day he leaves his shoes in the yard on purpose, and at night he asks a guard to go get them. The escape is on. He wedges a ping-pong bat in the fence and uses that to help him get up to the roof, pushes the bar out. He scales several more walls and fences with ease. This guy's fit. An officer takes a shot at him, but misses. The last wall is 2.5 metres high. He does that easily, considering everything he's done before. He's out, he's in Malabar, tries to flag down a cab, fails, runs off into the night. Denning, next morning, hears about it in Maitland and apparently is furious that Cox has gone without him. Cox has also gone without the rest of the Maitland crew who are, as they going back to court for their hearing, and there is talk that Cox has betrayed the underworld. Cox is in a strange position now. I mean, he's celebrated because he's escaped an escape-proof jail. You know, the cops describe it to the press as almost superhuman. Cox's escape was in 1977. A year later, he returned to Katingle, entered the same way he'd escaped, but this time he brought guns, rope, dynamite. He was going to free his mates. But, but, an early rising neighbour spots him on the roof from her bathroom window. She calls the cops. Cox hears the sirens coming and he flees the scene before he has a chance to get anyone out. Didn't matter though, in some ways, in the underworld, his legend grew and he regained any lost faith from his solo escape. Wednesday, 15th of November, 1978. We are robbed out of a lot of our fresh air time in the circle. We are supposed to be let out of our cells at 8am, but we in the circle don't get out until 8.30am. Denning remained behind bars. When Katingle was shut in 78, he ends up back in Grafton. In 1978, Denning's life takes a turn for the worst. But not as badly, obviously, as, as the life of Willie Carl Faber, the overseer who was bashed over the head with a hammer during Denning's uh, 1974 attempt to escape from Paramount. Finally, after four years of you know, living hell, the now epileptic Willie Carl Faber succumbs to his injuries and dies. This makes Denning the least popular man in the New South Wales prison system. September 1978 was assaulted by at least seven prison officers. Denning is bashed quite brutally by a group of prison officers and he protests. He He's not having it anymore. He's tired of, of being beaten. You know, he's been stripped and beaten ever since he was a kid. He's had enough of it. He stands up for himself. He he befriends a prison activist named Brett Collins, and he and Brett Collins eventually bring a case against prison officers for bashings. I believe that Mr Buckley knew by calling me a dog bastard in his usual aggressive attitude, he would get a reaction from me. 
because the worst thing you call a prisoner is a dog. Denning sort of starts to get some minor celebrity. He's good looking, uh, yeah, he's cute. And there's something quite attractive about the, the way he speaks. He's visited a lot in jail by a very large number of people, uh, for once, I mean women, uh, involved in the prisoners' rights movement. He's arguing that he got verbaled over the uh, initial prison escape attempt. You know, he says he wasn't there. And people, women largely, are happy, willing to take up his case. But it goes nowhere. And in the end, I think Denning decides he's got no choice but to escape. My name is Raymond John Denning. And I'm a prisoner. I have decided that the best thing I can do is make a tape. Just before he breaks out, he sends a tape to Two Double J's prisoner show. This is the whole system based on secrecy. Uh, so that only one side of the story ever gets out. They air it in full. Anyone that prepared to go all the way to improve things for their fellow prisoner will be classed as an intractable prisoner and then the world is told, oh, this man's dangerous, this man's that, and this man's this. He was beginning to find his voice. I guess at the dawn of literacy on somebody who was a semi-literate um, largely uneducated child and he also refines uh, massively his writing. So we're told that when some prisoner tries to escape that it's wrong but that is the only natural thing to be expected. It is when there are no escape attempts that will prove to everyone that we are no longer human. When you've got a sentence as long as he had <laughs> the, it, it, why wouldn't you escape? There's no reason not to escape. Tuesday, 26th of February, 1980. Nothing to do in the rest of his life. You know, you, you might as well get out, even if you're just out. I've come up with a plan that has got me feeling the taste of freedom. For, you know, a couple of days. It's got to be about a couple of days than the couple of days in Grafton. I don't think he necessarily had any kind of plan. Just thought, well, I'm getting out. Other prisoners packed him into a rubbish box. And that box is uh, put on a trolley and wheeled out to the incinerator under the supervision of a prison officer. The prison officer doesn't look in the box to see if there's a prisoner in it. He just leaves it at the incinerator, goes back inside, Denning opens the box and he's out, jogging down the road in Grafton. The tape you've just heard was recorded illegally in jail by Raymond John Denning before his escape from the maximum security jail at Grafton on April the 2nd. The Prisoners Action Group in Sydney and Women Behind Bars claim that police statements since then are designed to create a climate of public fear so that when he's eventually caught, he could be killed. They've called on the New South Wales government to start an inquiry. Raymond Denning, Breaking Out, was produced by Mike Williams. The sound engineer was John Jacobs. Mark Dappen's book, Public Enemies, is published by Alan and Unwin. Next time on The History Listen, part two in the Denning saga, 
people began to forget about what Ray had been convicted of and they focused on the romance of his daring escape from prison and this cat and mouse game that he played with the police. Ray is on the loose. A media frenzy kicks off and the police are made to look like fools. But one last thing before I go. We're on the lookout for original history stories. And so if you're a podcaster, a documentary maker, or you just know a really good yarn that needs spinning, then send us a pitch. The deadline is September 25th. And there's a link at the bottom of the History Listen website. I'm Kirsty Melville. Catch you next time on the History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.